it's an iterative process where you're going out to the market with a message or with a product, with maybe having a sales conversation and listening very carefully to the feedback you get, incorporating it into what you're doing. Hello and welcome to Brandtuned, a podcast on brand management that covers trademarks and IP as they're intrinsic to brand equity. I'm your host, Shireen Smith, author of Brandtuned. Writing this led to Byron Sharp's evidence-based research stressing distinctiveness over differentiation, which I largely agree with, though not totally. Hence our tagline, Sharp Branding. John Williams, who started out as a developer on pioneering special effects software before heading up a small media technology consultancy team at Deloitte's. John left to consult independently to broadcasters around the world before founding the Ideas Lab and writing his best-selling books, including his most recent one, F-Work, Let's Play. In this episode, I asked John Williams about his own business journey, why he created a separate personal business and product brand. And then we focused on the you element of my tuned framework, namely understanding your market. So John talks about product market fit. He has such an engaging way of talking and explaining concepts. I learned loads. If you're embarking on any new project or launching a new product, this is essential listening. Hello, John. Welcome to the Brandtune podcast. When did you first start out in business? How did you deal with your own branding? Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I was um, the very first time I tried to go freelance was after I'd been a software developer and I didn't really know anything about how to present myself, uh, but I do now. And uh, I just kind of told people all the things I could do and made them work out what I could do for them, which is not a good marketing strategy. But uh, it led to some interesting projects. And what I did was I started contracting under my own limited company, which had a kind of fairly random name early on. And um, it was only about five years ago or something where I decided it was time that I had a a proper company of a company brand. Mm -hmm. And I renamed the company to the Ideas Lab. Why the Ideas Lab? What was the thinking there? Well, it's partly because I was a science geek as a child. I still love science and uh, I studied physics at college. Uh, and, and labs are very exciting things to me, <laughs> probably not to <laughs> most people, but I love the idea of a lab. And uh, the only other thing I love even more than a lab is ideas. And so I kind of combined them and called it the ideas lab. And it's a place where you can experiment with ideas and Make them happy, uh, make them happen, and play them out uh, until they work for you. And turn into real businesses or books or brands or whatever it might be. Okay, so what did you do in terms of getting a visual identity with the Ideas Lab? I, I've been through a few because initially I had a brand which was Freestyle Success, and then when my first book came out, which was called Screw Work, Let's Play, I kind of branded around that 
And so my main website was screwwelletsplay.com. And it was only later that I realized that the Ideas Lab needed to be a distinct brand and I needed a company brand. Mm -hmm. And it was partly through talking to some experts in this area who explained to me that there are multiple different types of brand. There's, there's a product brand like Screw Work, Let's Play, the name of my first book, the one that's now called F Work, Let's Play. Um, there's also a personal brand, which is who is John Williams and what's he about? And then there is a company brand, which is, hey, if you're going to come work with me, this is the company that's going to pay you. This is what the company stands for. And I remember somebody saying to me, it's quite difficult to get good people to come and work for you if you don't have a company brand, because what are they buying into essentially what is the set of values that they are signing up to so that was partly what influenced my thinking to actually create a proper company brand and in terms of visual identity i spoke to a designer graphic designer i quite liked and he came up with this um logo and a typeface but the logo is is a kind of brain symbol i want to avoid anything to do light bulbs because if you Google the word idea and do an image search, you get an awful lot of light bulb images. So uh, this one was about, this was about a brain because it's really about the abilities of our brain to come up with something that's never existed before. And I absolutely love that stuff and love helping people do it. Uh, so we've, we created a brand around that logo and some brand values, which included a kind of informality because I believe a business has changed. It doesn't have to be as, you know, you don't have to wear a suit or anything like that anymore. You can work from anywhere in the world if you want to, if you set your business up that way. Hence, my books have got quite strong titles like Screw Work, Break Free and F Work, Let's Play. Why the change of titles? Yeah, so that my first book was called Screw Work, Let's Play. And this new one is basically a 10-year update. And it, it's a kind of fully re revised, expanded and updated edition with a new title. And the funny thing is that when I was first writing Screw Work, Let's Play, what became that book, I was talking to one of my creative mentors and he said, well, this needs a strong title, doesn't it? Surely it needs to be something like F word work. And I went, okay, I see what you mean. Because I was making a strong statement about how different the world of work was now. And I needed to get, you know, shout that in a loud way. And in the end, we kind of pulled back and it became screw work, let's play. And I think trying to get the F word past Pearson back in 2009, what it might have been pretty challenging, mm -hmm. a fairly conservative publisher. Uh, but when it came to, when I suggested to them at the end of 2019, why don't we do a 10-year updated edition? Because it's such a good book and people love it so much. Uh, but it's difficult to recommend now because the marketing advice talks about Twitter is a new thing. Instagram didn't exist. So there's a lot of stuff that needed updating. And they said, well, funny enough, we've been talking to rather major retailer in the UK, which is WH Smiths. And they're, they're, they're expressing an interest in having a nonfiction book, which has the F word in the title. Mm -hmm. And would you be happy to kind of make this new version of your book? F word, let's play. It's F double asterisk K. <laughs> I campaigned for one asterisk, but Pearson wanted two, so they, they won on that one. And um, and so we actually we, we did it to suit the the desires of a major retailer who then chose to make it business book of the month 
and it's it's still currently a top 10 book in um a bunch of shops it's illegal to go into right now which is very entertaining <laughs> that's, that's a bit disappointing <laughs> yeah okay so is that the name of your product as well then whatever however you help people well no so i have a course called the pioneer program that's my flagship program it helps people find a, a, a core offer these are usually people who are providing a service of some kind rather than a physical product and put it out into the world in three months, market it, sell it, prove it's going to work. And a lot of what we're doing in that course and what people I believe should be focusing on the early stages of getting something off the ground, anything new, even if you've already got an existing business, but you're launching a new income stream or new product within that business, you need to focus initially not on elaborate marketing strategies, but on product market fit, which is a phrase from the startup world, from the tech startup world. And you have an idea for a thing which you think people are going to like and which you want to put out into the world. And the market has an idea, it actually knows what they want. Mm -hmm. And somehow you have to find uh, how to fit those two things together uh, in a way where you can do the thing you want to do, because that's what I'm trying to help people do, create a business that they love, and the market recognizes the value of it and is happy to pay for it. And there's that product market fit process takes can be quite frustrating. It takes various different goes at it, and you have to kind of it's almost like a child playing one of those fit the uh, fit the the block into a certain shape game. And they've got, you know, the triangular shape and they're trying to shove it into a circular hole and it's not working. They were trying a square hole and then suddenly they find this triangular hole and, and it clunk, it works. And that's kind of what product market fit feels like. It's like after bashing your head against a brick wall, suddenly people go, oh yeah, yeah, I want that. I'll pay for that. And that's what the Pioneer Program helps people to do. And then also do all the normal marketing stuff of social media strategy and their website and so on, so that they can turn their signature offer into a significant income stream in their business. Okay, well, product market fit sounds really interesting. I imagine you have to kind of pitch it to people and see whether it lands. So tell me more how you go about doing it. Yes, you do. And in those early stages, it's, it's different to what you're doing later. Once a product is established and you know that you're, a certain kind of person wants it and will buy it. Then you have normal sales calls and you're basically just evaluating the prospect and finding out if they if they are a good fit for this thing and then doing your best job of communicating the value of it and what it will do for them. In the early stages, you are you may be having sales calls, but it's as much about you learning as it is about them. So you are listening very carefully to what they say and when they sound and look excited and when they're not, what often happens is you have an idea for a product or a service or a package or something. You put it out to the world in, you know, with great excitement and great fanfare and people just go, eh, and they don't really care. And then what you do is you, you work out, well, why is that? What, it, what was it that they wanted? And you discover that actually what they wanted was something that is essentially the same thing, but they, the, the important thing to them was something else that you've hardly mentioned in your sales copy or in your pitch. Well, maybe you discover that almost nobody wants to buy it except for this small subcategory of business or person 
And for them, it's just wonderful. And so instead, what you do is you reposition all your marketing just to that niche, because then you can keep selling it as much as you want. It's an iterative process where you're going out to the market with a message or with a product, with maybe having a sales conversation and listening very carefully to the feedback you get, incorporating it into what you're doing, adjusting your product and your offer and your marketing messaging and putting it out to the market again and then seeing what happens. And you just do that round and round and round. And that works for anything. I mean, it's really it's how the whole of uh, life on earth developed. You know, it's evolution in, in, in a sense. It was evolution is organisms responding to the environment around them. So it's kind of a, a similar sort of thing. It's a very powerful and very poorly understood process. And um, and people, because what most people think is if you put your product out to the world and people don't immediately buy it, then you have failed and you should throw away your product and come up with a new one. If you're a beginning entrepreneur, hopefully the experienced entrepreneurs listen to this will get what we're talking about. So how do you actually find someone who's interested enough for you to talk to them about it? Well, I recommend at the beginning that rather than having, in fact, not having any sales calls at all and just making it your aim to go and talk to at least 10 people who you think are in your target market. And then I would approach them with a particular statement, a particular positioning around it and say, um, I, I really like what you're doing in your company. So, you know, make some personal reference to what they're doing. Say, I'm developing a new service that's not available yet but I would love to pick your brains for 10 to 15 minutes on what someone like you would need in in order for this product or service or app or whatever it is to be your dream solution. Can, you know, can you spare 10 minutes on zoom or a coffee or whatever it might be just to, and, and, and make it clear, this is not a sales conversation. So, you know, I'm not, this isn't available yet. I'm still working on it but I'd be really grateful. So you're asking for a favor. Not everyone, of course, is going to do this for you, mm-hmm. but a certain proportion of people, you know, just the same as not everyone's going to buy who you get on a sales call, but a certain proportion of people will say, yeah, okay, particularly if they want something. So one of my clients on the Pioneer program right now is working on employee assistance programs where these are things that you buy in bulk, and he provides counseling to your staff, another kind of wellness perks. And he feels like these packages don't work very well. These services don't work well for small businesses. So he's currently reaching out to small businesses and asking them, like, have you considered an EAP, which is what it's called? Uh, if you haven't, why not? Uh, do, you, do you have these kind of problems going on? If you have considered an EAP, why haven't you bought one yet? What don't you like about the current solutions out there? So it's very organic kind of target market, um, market research. That's much better in the earlier day, early stages, I suggest, than sending people 50-page questionnaires and expecting complete strangers to do the work for you of uh, ticking boxes and so on. Have organic conversations, <clears throat> and that will tell you a huge amount more than – it will uh, than any amount of surveys will do. It's okay to ask to do a survey later when you've got lots of customers and they're invested in your product and they like you and you, they will take a few minutes out to do a survey and 
you know, that kind of is valuable at that point. But early on, it's better to just, you can email your, if you have an email list, email your entire list and go, here, this is this thing I'm creating. I'd love to get your input on it. Um, if you could reply and answer one question, what was one thing you'd need included in this product to make it really a great choice for you? And then just ask people to reply to you personally. I've seen people who are CEOs of, of decent sized startups do this every so often and they'll read every single response and reply to every single one. Could it work if you set up a web page and try and send people to that web page to register their interest, for example, for something? Yes, you can do. I mean, there are famous examples of this where people will do an opt in page and you know, determine whether people are willing to opt in. What was the example I saw the other day? Oh, a guy who wanted to start a, a biryani delivery service in Islamabad. I'm quite surprised there's no biryani <laughs> there. But and, and he's he basically tested it in exactly the way you're describing, actually, which is that he ran ads to a to a page or to a phone number, I think. Mm-hmm. And then when people called, he said, I'm sorry, we're sold out at the moment. We can t- can we take your details? And when he had 33 people basically express interest in a biryani, he went, okay, we've got interest here. And he he actually start, set up a kitchen and started doing deliveries. So um, yes, you can do that. That's one type. That's kind of quality. It's quantitative research, isn't it? Rather than qualitative. Mm-hmm. And it is quite, it's useful to do both though. So he was testing what is the size of that market in his local area. But you also sometimes need to ask, the qualitative questions that I was talking about, which is what would make this, you know, in the biryani example, like what would be your dream solution for this? Uh, what would you, what kind of biryani is your favorite? Uh, you know, what delivery time would you kind of put up with, etc.? So you can ask all those kind of questions. And there is, you know, Paul Graham, who's the founder or co-founder of Y Combinator, the most respected startup accelerator in the world. He says you need to do things that don't scale in the early stages. In when Airbnb was starting, the two founders used to uh, spend their entire life flying around America, talking to people and meeting people who were listing their properties and talking to them directly. So somebody who just listed their flat to rent it out on Airbnb, they would fly to them and sit down with them and have a conversation. And obviously, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> but in those early days, it's the only way sometimes to get that really high quality information you need. And most people don't bother, which is why most businesses never get off the ground. Do you have any good questions that you think would elicit useful information? Yeah, the there's a question to avoid, first of all, which is, a kind of version of what do you think of my idea? Mm. It's it's really, I mean, I wouldn't ban it altogether, but that's generally the kind of question people ask if, they, if they're not, you know, if they haven't been through a sort of course I run. And the problem with that is people always want to be, people generally want to be nice, particularly if you're, if you're in Britain. Maybe if you're in America, people are a bit more direct, mm. a bit more honest, but it depends what country you're in. But, you know, people will generally go, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. I mean, you know, how many people have started something where people would say, oh, yeah, totally, that sounds like a really good idea. You should go and do that. 
And then when you actually do it and you say, well, do you want to buy it? They go, oh, no, 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 no. Mm. <laughs> so what you want to do instead is ask questions about them. So you're trying to work out things like the pain they have right now. What is the frustration they have in this area that you're helping with that's making them look for solutions? You can also ask them what their dream solution is. So uh, what would it look like and what would it want it? Want to wanted to give you if it was just the perfect thing, and you can also ask things like, um, look at all the competitors that are out there, and think about, uh, ask them like, why didn't you go with this person? Or if you did go with this person, how are they? What's that experience been like? Has it been good? Has it been uh, frustrating in any way? Is there anything you wish they did, which they don't do? And all that information is just absolute gold dust. And um, a friend of mine uh, started a startup company that run that connects uh, Salesforce, the CRM, to Zero, the finance app, and it's now very successful. But when he he started out, he started out because he was solving his own problem. So he was trying to connect the two things together, the CRM and the and the information about whether the person had how much money the person paid you and where they pay their invoices. And he was finding he was having to lash it together with sort of, you know, uh, spreadsheets and bits of API calls and stuff. And so he thought there's a product here, started building something for himself. Started talking to other people who were going like, yeah, this is really frustrating. You know, I can't believe this isn't built into Salesforce or why hasn't anybody done this yet? If it did this, it would be really good. And then he built it. And he's now got a product that's, uh, that's very successful. He has, I'm not allowed to say how much money he makes, but he's, he's got like 15 staff all over the world and runs it from his home in New York. Well, how many people would you suggest talking to? Well, I think 10 is a very good, and, and bear in mind, you might have to ask 20 or more to get 10. Mm-hmm. Um, if you imagine though, if you actually spoke to a hundred potential clients, you might think, oh my God, that'd take an awful lot of time. It takes a lot of time to launch products that don't work either, and it mm. costs money. So the more people you can get, the better. I think go for an absolute minimum of 10. The, the people are shocked how much they learn in the first contact of like five minutes with an actual customer. Mm-hmm. And um, there's just no substitute for that, really. No, that can be on Zoom. It can be in person. We're allowed to meet in person. It doesn't really matter so much. It's just the the ability to have an actual proper conversation with people. But it's quite difficult to find people whose situation is right for your particular offering. I'm sure a lot of people will be in that situation. But who do you actually talk to? How do you identify people who might actually have some useful information to give you? Well, often you can think, okay, who's the Who's the buyer for this person? Is it, you know, if it's companies, it might be the head of HR, it might be the, it depends what your product is, head of engineering, um, CIO, whatever it might be. Can I go and find all those people on LinkedIn, try and connect to as many of them as possible? You can also um, make sure you have a content strategy that's in tune with what you're creating. So if you plan out, you know, a month or two of content talking around what it is, this this subject area that you are helping with, 
then you will draw people in who are intrigued by that. And, and then when you drop a post at some point saying, hey, I'm creating this thing, if you could have your dream, you know, brand management application, what you know, a, a service, what is the one thing you'd want to get out of it? Or what is your biggest frustration with managing your own brand right now? Or something like that. And then you can guarantee you'll get a, a certain number of re- responses. So none of these are kind of press a button and magically you you make money, but the they do actually pay off. So just talking around your subject matter and posting basically every day on LinkedIn or Facebook, depending on where your target market is, um, and talking around the kind of problems people have, who are going to be your buyers, uh, the kind of the kind of comparisons or possible potential pitfalls of the other solutions that are out there right now. You don't necessarily need to name products, but you might, for instance, if you have a different approach to your topic than other people, then you can talk about why that is and what the problem is with most people's approach. Mm -hmm. So I talk a lot in my marketing about the fact that everyone's obsessed with the idea of if you just get enough followers on social media and they get enough traffic to the website, they'll magically be rich. But in actual fact, unless you've got something on your website, which is an offer people want to buy, you, it doesn't, there's no point in having a million people come to your website because they'll just bounce off it and go away and never come back. So I'm, I'm talking a little bit about the problems that people get into when they're posting, trying to feel like they should post every day on social media, but they don't know what to post about and there's no kind of strategy behind it. Hmm. Do you help people with this in your course? I mean, can you tell me a bit how you help in your course? Yeah, so in the Pioneer Programme, we we have a, a part of the beginning. It's about branding. It's about what is it that makes you your take on this topic different to other people's. And, uh, you know, whatever your product is and whatever your business is, that you will have a unique take on it, but sometimes you need a bit of help drawing out what that is. We also look at what is the niche in, and a niche in two different kinds. One is niching down what you offer, so limiting the functionality so you just do one thing really well. And then the other niche is being specific about who is most likely to buy it and who you're going to be speaking to. And that's a really important framework because... If you don't get that right at the beginning, you end up with um, a very generic website copy and marketing copy that says, if you're a person X who has this problem or you're B, you're in situation Y, or maybe you've got this or that or the other. And then the copy, you read it and it's so general and vague, nobody relates to it mm-hmm. and it doesn't bite. Whereas if you zoom in on a particular niche or a particular problem you solve, then you can get really you can write copy that, that that just, when people read it, it's almost like mind reading. They're just like, wow, are you looking over my shoulder? This is kind of scary. And that's, you can only do that when you get specific. Hmm. So we talk about copywriting in the Pioneer Program. We also talk about what is this core offer, this one thing that's going to make you a good income stream in your company so that rather than saying, hey, I'm a, you know, web designer, project manager, uh, life coach, whatever it might be, and say, and and then having very open-ended conversations, 
you have some kind of predefined offer that says, if you've got this problem, this is how we solve it. And it may even have a set price in the B2C world. You often have a price on your website. In the B2B world, probably not. But you at least have an idea of this is the structure of how we're going to work together. And does that sound like it's going to, at the end, you'll be at this location. You know, this much will have changed for you for the better. And then people can just, it's much easier for people to make a decision to buy. And then aside from that, we also talk about social media strategy and content strategy and uh, email marketing, building your email list and that kind of stuff. But we get the fundamentals right first. So is that all indicated in F work, let's play? Yeah, a lot of that, that, the scope of that is really in the book as well. We don't go as in depth into it because it's it's um there's a lot of really useful information in it but it's kind of designed as an enjoyable read lots of ideas in there to help you uh but obviously in that when we i'm working with people in a much smaller group then we can get into the nitty-gritty of should you be on facebook and what's the difference between a, a group and a page and a personal profile and what you should post where and you know that kind of stuff is is a little gnarly to get into in a printed book so these people who are in a job who want to leave their work and a lot of them are people who are already self-employed, but they one of the big problems I help people solve is that they become commoditized. In other words, they've by presenting themselves as somebody who can do anything for anybody, they've actually shot themselves in the foot because they've made themselves look like everybody else who's got their skill set. Even though they're good, it doesn't really matter. And what I show people to do, how to do is to differentiate yourself, stand out, create a distinctive brand, a distinctive proposition, but often allows you to raise your rates significantly, you know, by sometimes doubling, quadrupling. I mean, crazy amount. I think even if people are reluctant to niche down, they need to remember that Amazon started just with books, even though yeah. they intended to sell everything eventually. Yeah. Yeah, so niching doesn't condemn you to niche forever, but it's just really good if you're trying to get traction on a new um, a new product or a new business, it is really good to start off by niching. Uh, Facebook was only available in to Harvard students at the beginning. You couldn't join if you didn't have a Harvard email address. Amazon, as you say, was, um, uh, was books only until they expanded. So, you know, there are huge multi-billion dollar companies that started off as, I mean, Facebook was written in 30 days by Mark Zuckerberg himself, mm. the first version. And it was so basic that it was, but, but it but fulfilled a need at the time, which is primarily people joined Facebook in the first iteration because you could tell who was single and who wasn't on campus and you could message them and flirt with them. That was basically the killer app, for, <laughs> the killer use case for, uh, for Facebook. So I gather you've got some case studies in your book. Do you have any that are a good example of product market fit that seemed unusual when they had the idea, but which worked? <laughs> I've got some really weird ones. Um, there's a couple of guys called uh, Bompus and Parr, uh, Sam Bompus and Harry Parr. When I met them 10 years ago, they were doing novelty jellies Another food experiments. The other, another one they did was breathable gin and tonics, <laughs> and uh, where you could sit in the room for a standing room for forty minutes, and it would, you you get drunk basically just by breathing it in. 
So they did these wacky food experiments. And, um, you know, I had no idea where they were going to go, but they're obviously really enjoying it and very dedicated to what they were doing. And now they have like a 12-person international flavor studio. And, uh, and I think what they proved is that there is a hunger, particularly amongst, well, amongst corporate, amongst brands, basically, to stand out and look original. So if you want something out of the ordinary for either a corporate event, but more likely a PR event, then you go to Bompers and Par, particularly if you're in food and drink. So they created, on the roof of Selfridges, they had um, a lake of cognac that you could row over uh, that was sponsored by some famous cognac. They've, um, they, I think the Hilton hired them recently to make the world's first vegan hotel suite. So nothing in the room uh, had any animal products in it whatsoever and was guaranteed. Wow, what fun for them. <laughs> yeah, it was a fantastic business. And it started out with these two guys playing around with jelly molds. And and then what they discovered is that people have a hunger for this, for these unusual experiments, and they could do the public-facing experiments like the breathable cocktail. And what it did is raise their profile and help them to win very lucrative corporate work and, uh, and brand work. Um, and another example in there, also food-related, but just by coincidence, um, Petra Barron was, when I interviewed her, she had a, a food truck serving gourmet chocolate, hot chocolate mostly. And she drove around from festival to festival selling drinking chocolate out of her van. And then she had this idea after a couple of years thinking like, well, all of us in the street food, you know, in the street food movement, she organized together so she created this thing with some other people called eat street and they basically pushed forward the um the street food movement in the uk so five years ago they were everywhere they kind of really made that thing happen and then she created another company called curb food which is a uh street food accelerator so if you want to create a van with you know the latest crossover sushi taco or whatever it might be you can go to curb get education get investment sometimes uh, and get help getting it off the ground and again she has you know it's like a proper company doing remarkable work now so that's an example where they found product market fit as they went along so she discovered that there was a need for for street food vendors to talk to each other because she was one Mm-hmm. But she was also talking to these people all the time. So she was friends of lots of other vendors. And that's how she saw that there was a need. That's kind of her way of finding product market fit. Very interesting. So what's a good way for people to contact you, John, if they want to get in touch? You can find me and my social links, and you can find the book at the microsite for the book, which is fworkletsplay.com. So F-W-O-R-K, mm-hmm. letsplay.com. And uh, you can also Google my main website, which is the Ideas Lab. And I have a free Facebook group, um, which is called F Work Let's Play, Create uh-huh. a Business You Love with John Williams. So you can find a link to that on the on the book's website if you can't find it in Facebook. And we occasionally do five-day challenges, uh, the five-day standout challenge to help people go through the kind of things we've been talking about and launch something 
in five days or at least learn everything we need to to do that so if you sign up to our email when's the next one next one is going to be i think oh end of april thank you very much indeed john thank you My guest next week is Bryony Thomas of Watertight Marketing. Her book of that name has been in the bestsellers list consistently for over five years with no gimmicks. Bryony's book has been described variously as the entrepreneur's essential marketing manual, a work of genius and a license to print money. She is a prolific and inspiring writer on marketing. If you've enjoyed the podcast, do sign up to the newly created Brand Tuned podcast newsletter, where I'll be sharing tips on how to manage brands, answer your questions, give you sneak previews of upcoming episodes and ask you about topics you want covered. And you might be invited to do an interview if you've got useful content to share which listeners would want to know. Sign up at brandtuned.com newsletter. The link is in the show notes.